Uh, welcome, everybody. My name's Ty. My name's Morgan. And this is Science, Science on, on the Side. Side. Welcome. Welcome to another episode. What are we talking about today? Today we are talking about grave digging. Oh, yeah. This is a great story. Yeah, real life Indiana Jones. Yeah, it really is. It yeah. really is. And, and a wonderful scientific discovery. Yeah. 1918 flu pandemic, sometimes called the Spanish flu, but that's a misnomer. Why is it called Spanish flu? Uh, mm, I'm not sure. Should have looked that up. Could have. <laughs> didn't. <laughs> Missed that one. Um, That's how I do all my schoolwork. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, let's see. Um, it's unknown where it actually started from. I'm wondering if that was, like, where it got that name, though. They thought it started in Spain. Yeah, but apparently Spain wasn't involved in the war. They were neutral during the whole thing. Um... Yeah, I, I mean, other than having to... Anyway, I think I've heard a lot of people say kind of the point of, like, trying not to call it the Spanish flu is if, like, we called the coronavirus, like, the Chinese flu. Like, it's just not quite right. We shouldn't do that. Yeah. So, anyway, flu of 1918. However, Spanish flu has its own Wikipedia, just FYI. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that it's pretty commonly called that. Yeah. You can be racist against the Spanish. No, you right? can't. We are not racist on this <laughs> podcast, Ty. Okay. It's 1918 flu pandemic. Killed an estimated 50 million people worldwide, including almost three quarters of a million people in the U.S. So it was the deadliest flu uh, outbreak in the history of the modern world that we know of. Yeah, no, I think it might be the, the most deadly pandemic since the Black Death. It was, Which yeah. we talked about. Yeah. So that's pretty... That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And at the time, similar to the Black Death, we were we were more advanced than, you know, the dark ages. Mm -hmm. But they still didn't know what this was. Yeah. We, we knew of viruses, right? People had come along, found some viruses, um, or at least, I don't know, they hadn't really isolated viruses at this point. But they, no. they knew that it was infectious, right? And they yeah. knew that it was coming from another person uh, you could catch it. You could be contagious. You could get someone else sick. It was passed person to person. So they knew this, but it was still just kind of this invisible killer. Mm -hmm. Just so terrifying. Something about knowing what it is. It's still scary, but it's not the same to me. I think I would be terrified if some, if people were just dropping dead in the street and we had no idea what it was from. Yeah. That'd be so scary. Yeah, I agree. I feel like we have, we have a, What's the word I want to say? It's it's very interesting living in a time in which technology is so advanced and we really do, we know a lot about the universe and infectious diseases, not everything, but so far we're aware of almost everything that can infect you and kill you, right? Yeah. But this became a big question. Okay, the pandemic ended, lives stopped being lost to the 1918 flu. Right. And medicine and science started advancing and people started looking back and saying what was that virus mm -hmm. what was that flu and they knew what flu was they had the word influenza yes right so people were aware of this yeah but again yeah like you said just didn't really know exactly what that was didn't really they knew what viruses were but they could had no way to isolate them yeah yeah so this virus was really lost to history for a while it wasn't until the 1950s that people started really wanting to know what caused that pandemic. 
So a man by the name of Johan Holten, who was a Swedish microbiologist, was working on his PhD in Iowa. And he's really the hero of the story. So yeah. he's our Indiana Jones. Yeah, he is. And he was sitting around talking with some of his mentors and PhD buddies, and they were talking about how could we find this virus? Yeah. You know, what What could we do uh, to like, actually identify it? Yeah, like is there anywhere we could actually, that it might be preserved, that we could go get it? Yeah, and they came to the conclusion. I can just imagine them sitting around with their coffees, just like, just like drawing crap up on a whiteboard. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, chalkboard at the time. Chalkboard, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and just like thrown out crazy ideas, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it was the boss, the PI, who was like, you know, no, 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 no. They had a talk. They had like a seminar talk. Kind of sounds like some of our seminars where we have invited speakers come in. And I, they were chit-chatting with this guy, and he apparently threw out this idea that, you know, if you were going to find one, you might be able to go dig up some bodies up in Alaska where it's really cold and the ground is really cold, and these bodies might be preserved enough that actually might preserve this virus. Would you ever go do that if some mentor was like, I mean, that is just, that's just radical, you know, like even more radical that it's 1950. It's not just like 2021 where I can buy a plane, a plane ticket on my phone today and be up in Anchorage tomorrow. Right. I mean, how did he even get up there? Did he fly up there? He flew. Did he fly? Okay. Yeah. So he hears this and he thinks this is what I want to do for my PhD. This is his PhD. Yeah. That's mind-blowing. Yeah, it really is. Just being like, sure, I'm going to go up to Alaska, excavate some bodies, and see if I can get this virus. I'm, I mean... Science is so different now. Yeah, yeah, we're weak. Okay, so what happened? So he goes up to Alaska. Yeah, so he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. Let's do this. Yeah. Flies up to Alaska to Brevig Mission, and mostly um, natives that lived here. And I guess they identified this place because they knew that Brevig Mission had had a really bad case of the flu passed through in 1918. Mm -hmm. And they're not sure how it came to there because they're pretty isolated. And right. so they thought could have been a mail carrier that might have brought it. Could have been like a doctor coming from a visiting city or something. Maybe coming on like a dog sled, which is... The, paints, paints the picture for what this area is like. Very cold. Yeah, yeah. Permanently cold. Yeah, yeah. And they had had a really bad go with the 1918 pandemic and had a lot of people die. And I think it was a really small community anyway, but they had like 80 deaths. And so these deaths happened really close together and they didn't have time to make individual graves. So they just dug one big grave and dumped all the bodies in it, covered it up and marked it with a cross, sitting on a hill in this little town. So Johan Holton shows up and he talks to the village elders and tells them about what he's setting out to do. Mm -hmm. And ultimately they give him permission to do it. Yeah, which I was, I don't know, I guess I was a little surprised. I was surprised too. You know? Yeah. But, uh... I think that's pretty remarkable. And so he he starts digging 
Now you can imagine the ground is frozen. You're not just gonna like stick a shovel in and dig up these bodies. No, we're talking like ice picks. He had to set fires yes. above it to like thaw it enough. Yeah. To I mean, how long? It. And they didn't. I mean, I could never really find how long this actually took to, for him to dig down. You uh, know how long it took? It took days. I yeah. don't know how many days, but it took days. Yeah. To get so he found the first body two feet down. Wow. So it took it's not too deep. No, it's not deep at all. But it took two days to get two feet down yeah. and find the first body. Yeah. This is a lab scientist we're talking about. This is not like a mortician. This is not like your classic grave digger. This is like if you and I went out there. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine finding that first body and just being like, uh, I don't. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, don't and then, make me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then he finally comes across a little girl. Yes. And, and she's like 12 years old. Perfectly preserved. Yeah. Like fully intact. She was wearing a blue dress. She had red ribbons in her hair and just like perfectly preserved. Yeah. They said the 40 years that had passed or 30 years that had passed, she had like not decomposed yeah at all yeah yeah so anyhow he ends up digging up a few different bodies right yeah. that were well preserved he gets i mean i just think about the logistical feat of this like he's got these heavy frozen bodies that he has to transport like what did he like rent a flatbed truck and like haul these bodies in somewhere i don't know and then or where, did he do it right there yeah like and then and then so they get these bodies and now they have to cut them open so Ugh. he's not a doctor yet foreshadowing he's not a doctor right he's just some stupid graduate student like you and i right and yet here he is opening up these bodies cracking the Ugh. chests open and getting lung tissue. I am so grossed out right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even handle this. Yeah. Oh, I think this is interesting. Apparently, in all the time it took him to dig up the bodies, they had run out of dry ice, right? So keeping these super, super frozen. And so in order to get around this, he goes around to all the hardware stores, the police departments, the fire departments, and gets all of the carbon dioxide fire extinguishers. Because this lets out like a really like cold a endothermic of... reaction that's really cold, right? Uh, he blasts these tissues with this carbon dioxide fire extinguisher to keep them frozen. Yeah, so this wasn't his original plan. Yeah. He had brought a bunch of dry ice with him, but by the time he got around to isolating all this, the dry ice had evaporated again how in the hell do you fly in the 1950s with dry ice did you just pack that on the plane yeah, i absolutely. mean they smoked on they planes so why planes. not right they were like yeah bring it on whatever you know you got, you got a bomb sure <laughs> <laughs> again just the logistics of this whole four thing four ounces of toothpaste yeah yeah is that more than three ounces sir <laughs> take your shoes off would you please okay so this is my first question for you this is not like a yes no i just want to know your thought process. Okay. Okay. You're, you're Johan Holton, 1950s. You've dug up these bodies. You got lung tissues from five people and you're like, this is it. I've got it. And then you realize you're out of dry ice. I wouldn't have what, thought what, of fire extinguishers. Oh, I wouldn't have either. What would you have done? <sighs> Thrown in the towel? Jumped in the ocean? Yeah, I probably would have been like, this is it. I, I mean, I, the only other thing I could think of is like just getting a bunch of ice. That's what I would have done. I mean, yeah. I'm not creative. I'm like, I would have just 
That's why pack I, I just feel like we're not him. as good a scientist as they used to be back then. I mean, like the, he was like, I mean, <laughs> fire extinguishers. It's a brilliant. Yeah, I know. You know. It's a brilliant idea. Yeah. On his flame, plane flight home, they had to make multiple stops and he would hop off the plane and run and grab a fire extinguisher, which were they just like sitting around in the airport? They're like, sure, take the fire. Yeah, no, go ahead. Use this. Use this. <laughs> on your lung samples in your yeah. mason jar. And he would refill them with, uh, like the carbon dioxide from the fire extinguisher, and he and then just bring them back on the plane. Yeah, and he said he was like, I think the people around me on the plane thought I was weird. I'm like, well, yeah. (laughs) Wow, wow. So he gets home. He's got all this lung tissue. He's kept it cold. I mean, as best as he can, right? And his his plan is he's going to grind up this lung tissue. I would imagine he's going to go through some centrifugation and maybe some purification steps and then he's going to try and uh, hopefully find a little bit of live virus and inject it into different animal models so he's got rabbits and guinea pigs and rats and mice and he tries injecting what he hopes is going to be this virus to make it sick to make an animal sick yeah so i'll just point out at this point there was no sequencing there was no oh, yeah. we like, didn't, they didn't even know what DNA the, was. I mean, they knew what DNA was. They didn't know that that was like our genetic information yet, right? That discovery came a few years after this. And so there was no like trying to characterize the genetic makeup of this virus. He was just trying to infect something, see if he could make some animal sick with this. Yeah. I wonder. This we I tie back into this uh, H. pylori story a little bit where Barry Marshall couldn't get his uh, disease to work in a bunch of animals that he tried. I wonder if uh, Johan Holton tried this in a primate, if or, he would have had a different result. Or, or human. just inhaled it himself. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Can you imagine the headline on that? PhD student idiot starts a second wave of the... Of the flu, flu pandemic. Flu pandemic, yeah. But for reasons that we'll talk about maybe a little bit later, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't have been as devastating. Maybe, maybe there was some immunity within the population yeah. at that point. Could be. But ultimately failed. Yeah. Couldn't get any animals to get sick. And that, for as creative and hardworking and, you know, kind of um, adventurous as he was, that was the end of the line. That was it. He didn't get a PhD. No, he he failed his experiment. He had no other way of identifying this virus at the time. So that that was was like end of the road. Yeah. Which is still like really curious to me. I mean, I get it and it is what it is. And I do think, you know, I I have members of my uh, thesis committee who have told me like the PhD degree is the highest academic degree you can earn. When you think about things like medical degrees, dental degrees, whatever, these are really like professional degrees, professional yeah. degrees. They're teaching you a trade, right? They're teaching you a trade. Exactly. Yeah. And and historically, the Ph.D. degree has been the, the, the highest academic honor. And with it comes a lot of rigor. Right. And I think back in those early times, you really had to prove your chops, so to speak. Right. Yeah. But even then. There weren't any more projects in the lab. There wasn't anything right. else you could work on. Like this was just end of the line. I mean, I I feel like there could be more to this story. Sure. Right. He yeah. could have been like, 
I'm sick of this. I yeah. flew up to Alaska. This yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. work. I am done. I'm done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget I it. I hate science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, think, I feel that sometimes. I think that was probably the reality, right? It, yeah. It'd be interesting to know. Yeah, I can't imagine that his PhD thesis advisor or his committee would be like, oh, this failed. You're out. You yeah, suck. bye. <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't really see that happening. Who knows? Could yeah, be. but could be. But he decided... Well, this didn't work out. I'm going to go to medical school. Right. Goes became, to medical school, becomes a doctor. Doctor. And that's the end of the road. And I mean, that's, that's like what that's, year? 1950 something, right? Uh, this all took place in 1951. So he's a doctor by end of 1950s, right? Start right. of 1960s. And that's kind of where his story ends for a long time. And, yeah. and this 40 whole years. thing was, was not a thing anymore. He always talked about it. His wife always mentions how like he wouldn't let this topic go he always brought it up with friends like in social settings yeah. and she's like you sound crazy stop talking about yeah. this please yeah he would always talk about it. he would talk about the bodies that he buried up and that whole experience and she always thought it was really morbid like yeah. why are you talking about this i mean i you would know? be i would be johan in this situation yeah i mean it's fascinating <laughs> i would be the one my husband would have to like pull me away from circles i'm like no no i dug up this body listen listen i got this lung tissue yeah and then it didn't work i couldn't get any of it to infect a rabbit you you know um so then one day fast forward you said 40 years. yeah fast forward 40 years so it's now mid 1990s he is a retired doctor having been a doctor for 40 years um and him and his wife are in costa rica on vacation on vacation sitting at the beach sitting at the beach and he's underneath a fruit tree and he's got the latest science magazine and he's reading it. They had they had they had physical prints. They still the, do of these. I know but nobody reads them like that anymore. I have I know one person. Your grandpa. My grandpa, who's also old, right? Yeah, nu <laughs> nuclear physicist, and uh, he subscribes to I think Nature Science and Cell, and he pays for his own subscription, which is insane because yeah, those things are expensive. They are expensive, and he reads them, and he tells me about the latest research that's where i get my information <laughs> not really but i'm always blown away but that's the literal only person i know that still like actually subscribes to those journals in yeah. a physical copy for like personal use yeah yeah pretty well we can find all the scientific articles online right everything's online yeah. so he's reading the latest article uh re latest magazine of science very high impact journal. And there is a recent discovery by a group at, oh, did you get this? They're at the, like the, you, they're like at some army thing. Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Washington, DC. Armed Institutes, Armed, Armed Forces, Forces Institute. Institute for Pathology. What yeah. is that? Did you look sure. that up at all? No. Is it still around? Not sure. Associated with the government. Totally. Yeah. So these And are it kind of sounds like they were working in like a, sequestered environment could be right yeah um and there's a there's a paper and they have sequenced 80 base pairs uh they say eight small segments so i'm not sure how many base pairs okay okay eight small segments but not the whole genome no of not even close not even close of the 1918s flu yeah so this is at the time where the human genome project was going on so there was a big push in the private sector as well as the public sector. So among academics at, at public universities and in private industry 
to really try and sequence the whole human genome. So all the DNA, try and figure out the whole genetic code. Mm -hmm. This was a huge undertaking. Right. Billions of dollars took over 10 years, ended in 2002. And so sequencing was just like. Just starting. Just starting. I mean, we had had it, but like the technology to upscale it and then to analyze it was still very much in its infancy. Yeah. And this was very tough back then. Yeah. And that was the research project of these two researchers, uh, Jeffrey Taubenberger and Ann Reed, who worked in this armed forces facility. And so they published this paper and Johan Holton is sitting on the beach, reads it. It's like, by golly, <laughs> <laughs> this is my research. Yeah. He's like, wow. I, uh, and apparently they had said something in the article to the effect of like, we just don't have, we, we, we have samples that are the size of a thumbnail and they're, they're, they're embedded in paraffin. So that was the only things that they had to work from. I and mean, they were from soldiers that had become sick. Yeah. 21 year old male U S service member stationed in Fort Jackson, South Carolina died in 1918 and so they had a known sample from someone and they had at the time in 1918 uh, collected and preserved some samples from him for later study. Right. So these are 80 year old samples, right? And, uh, or 70 year old samples. My math <laughs> skills are real great. Plus or minus. Yeah. They just couldn't get much from it. It was too degraded. Uh, they, they got, you know, small pieces from it of the virus, but they couldn't get more. And Johan Holton's like, I know where you can get samples. Yeah. I know where you can get more. And so he writes them a letter mm -hmm. and apparently it's like a three, four page letter where he basically tells them his story about his PhD and going up there and digging up these bodies and blah, 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 blah. And these two investigators are like reading this going, this guy, there's no way. They think they're getting punked. Yeah, they think, they think this is a joke. Like this <laughs> is a prank. They're looking around for the cameras to come out be like, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. They're like, this is a joke. But um, Tallenberger, is that his name? Taubenberger. Taubenberger. That's a cool last name. Yeah. Um, he, he calls Johan and they have a little discussion and he's intrigued and he's like, yeah, okay, cool. Let's do this. This right. is my favorite part of this story. So, right. <laughs> Taubenberger's like, okay, let's write an IRB. So, this is like, IRB is how you get like approval for human studies. Right. Um, right. Anything that we would do with human samples, we'd have to get an IRB right. for. So, Taubenberger's like, if it's funded by the government, right? If it's funded by the government or a private agency, you have to have these types of IRBs and regulatory permissions, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I, I think any human use, right? Okay. Well, they don't in the end. Well, yes. Right? Y yeah. Because he kind of goes around that. Yeah. So, so Taubenberger's like, okay, this will probably take a couple years. Like, let's start writing these. Let's try and get some funding to, like, get an excavation site up in Alaska. Like, this is great information. Hopefully those samples are still in permafrost. Like, those those bodies are still preserved well enough that we could get some good samples from them. And Johan's like, oh, no. no I, I'll <laughs> I'm going to go get them right now. <laughs> Within a week, he's booked himself flights up to Alaska. He's like, I'm, I got this. I'm yeah. doing this. Yeah. And his wife's like, you're crazy. You're 75 years old. What are you doing? Yeah. Goes up there. Wait, I've got a question for you. Oh, okay. 
So he famously brought something along with him of his wife's to help. What what do you think he brought with him? A blow dryer? <laughs> I like that. No. He he brought her garden shears. She's her- like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I need them. I need tools. I got to I got to go dig." And she's like, "My garden shears." So, she's still like grumpy about that. Interesting. I guess. Interesting. Yeah, so he gets up there and he goes to talk to again like the people in charge of the village. And again, now the we're okay, back in the 1950s is one thing, right? Now it's 19 mid 1990s. The world has changed. The world is a different place, right? And he goes up there and he ends up speaking with the granddaughter of the woman who originally gave him permission. Yes, and she remembered him. She remembered him and she remembered the stories that her grandmother told her. And she ultimately gave him permission to dig up because what she says was that if this could come, if this could lead to some type of discovery, this might help prevent future pandemics. And she was willing to be a part of that. If that's kudos to her, if that's not destiny, I don't know what is. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. It's so cool. Yeah. So he, he sets up, he's 75, 75 plus or minus years old at this point. So he has a little team to help him. And they do this excavation again, same site. And they say that the bodies are more decomposed at this point. You know, it's another 40 years that have passed. And so there's some decomposition that has happened. But about seven feet underground, they find the body of a woman that Holton named Lucy. And she was perfectly preserved. Wow. All that time. Wow. And so that's, that's what he used for his samples and this time he didn't have to rely on bringing dry fire ice extinguishers <laughs> or fire <laughs> extinguishers technology had come a long way and, yeah. and there were like preservation fluids that he could bring with him that mm-hmm. he stuck his samples in and he was a little bit paranoid about these samples uh making it back Surprise! I'm surprised he didn't fly them back himself. Yeah, he shipped them back. Yeah, and he shipped like several different containers. Yeah, because right? he was super worried about something getting lost or uh, confiscated or stolen, and he didn't want that to happen. So he sent samples and lots of different packages in the mail so that at least one would make it through. Yeah, and he got a call a week later. He he made it home. He got a call a week later saying that all of the samples had arrived and that they. We're cruising with yeah. them. Yeah. So now these two investigators get to work on isolating the RNA from this virus and sequencing it. Yeah. Right? DNA, I guess. Well, RNA. Was it, it RNA? Flu- influenza is an RNA virus. That's right. It is. Um, so they start to sequence it. And it takes seven years, but they sequence the whole genome. Seven years to sequence a viral genome. Do you know how I sequence now? I drop a a little piece of whatever sample I'm interested in. I send it off to a lab, I think in New Jersey, that does it. And they send me back results the next day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I can't imagine seven years of that. Seven years. Do we know how much it cost? I don't know how much it cost. It had to have been. Millions of dollars. Was it millions? I'm sure. Oh, yeah. It had to have been. Yeah. For that much time? Oh. 
These were rooms full of sequencers and big computers to analyze this. It's, I mean, we talk about how different it was between the 1950s and the 1990s, but 1990s to now, it's a well, different world too. Well, and I mean, it was still in this center. I mean, they didn't finish till 2005. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess that's when the paper came out when they published the full yeah. genome. So, so probably, maybe they finished a couple years. Yeah. 2004, 2003. Yeah. Yeah. Early 2000s. So we're only, you know, less than 20 years away from that. And like you said, sequencing a viral, a virus like that now, 24, 48 hours. Yeah, so for a couple hundred dollars. Coronavirus was isolated and sequenced and turned into a vaccine in a week. Was the vaccine turned into a week? I know it was the, sequenced in a week. The like the the segment, the M spike protein used for the spike protein. Yeah, like within days of sequencing it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just absolutely it's, remarkable. Uh, just timetables are so different and I think that we know that as scientists, but that's hard to like describe that and, and explain that to the general public that, well, yeah, 20 years ago, it did take seven years and now we can do it overnight. We can right. do it in a couple hours right? and it's not hard and it's not expensive. I could get my whole genome sequence, I think for like a thousand bucks at this point. Yeah. And that's a way bigger genome than uh, influenza virus. Yeah. Right? yeah. That's going to cost you a hundred bucks or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Right. And, and an afternoon. That's remarkable. Anything else to go along with this story? No, I think it's so cool. We got Indiana Jones on our hands and he just. Yeah. It really is like an, uh, like a, a real biologist story. Yeah. You know, He's kind of an archeologist of sorts. Right. And sometimes I wish that I, well, I should say, I don't want to go dig up bodies, but sometimes I wish I did field work. I wish, I think it would be cool to like go to a different country to get some samples for my study. There's a lab here at the U that I rotated with and, and they go to Nepal to study uh, people that live at very high elevations. Was oh, that Lynn Jordy? Yeah. Did you rotate with him? Yeah, I did. That's cool. And that that's pretty much why I rotated with him because <laughs> when he came and talked to first year students, he's like, a lot of students in my lab get to go on a trip to Nepal. I'm yeah. like, perfect. Sign me up. Yeah. yeah. The lab wasn't for me, yeah, but that's cool. But I thought that was so cool. So I was very intrigued by the story because of that. Yeah. You know, I got a little bit of field experience in my rotations as well. I uh, rotated with a professor in biology down on lower campus. Yeah. And she studies the microbiota of these wood rats that live in down in the southern Utah, northern Arizona desert. And so we got to take a trip down to northern Arizona and set up traps oh, to catch that? these rats. Yeah. And then we camped down there for a night and collected them the next day and then drove them back. Yeah, that, that's not for me. Either. <laughs> I don't want to catch rats. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was an interesting experience kind of being out in the wild, you know, as opposed yeah. to just being in the lab, pipetting things, yeah. looking at a computer screen. Yeah. That's the story. That is the story. Cool. Um, we have an email address if yeah. you'd like to get a hold of us. We're getting official here. Yeah, we're getting we're big time. It is science on the side podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. So if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. If we've just totally messed up a story. Yeah, if we, if we need to correct something. And you want to correct us? We're we're open to that. We're yeah. not we're not too high and mighty to Admit that we're wrong. Yeah, we're idiot graduate students. We can take the heat. Yeah. Uh, Reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for joining us on Science on the Side. Yeah, we'll see you next time. 
Hey, it's Ty. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Thanks to Atacana Keys for the music and Morgan for producing this episode. We'll see you next time.